save the king. What news, my worthy thane? Norway himself, with terrible numbers, assisted by this most disloyal traitor, the thane of Cawdor, began a dismal conflict, till a Bologna's bridegroom, bold Macbeth, confronts the king, rebellious arm against arm, curbing his lavish spirit. And to conclude, the victory fell on us. Great happiness. No more that Thane of Corda shall deceive our bosom interests. Go, pronounce his present death. And with his former title, greet Macbeth. My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast. And on today's episode, I'm going to be going back in time, as it were, on this podcast, because it's been many, many years since I did a Criterion Roundup episode. What basically what happened was I was picking them up each month and then each month trying to do a review of all the films that came out. And quite frankly, due to various reasons, in 2013, I got a little bit behind and I just kind of, it was too daunting to go back and kind of do them all on a month-by-month basis again. And it was a bit of a shame, really, because I know a lot of you uh, had text, I'm sorry, emailed me to say how much you enjoyed those shows. And it was great in a way because there was such a diverse selection of films to talk about. And it might sound slightly bizarre, but I do pick up all the Criterion films, but there's hundreds I haven't watched. I, I, I would probably estimate I haven't watched half of them, which is ridiculous. And the reason why I started to do those episodes was to make myself watch them. Um, in the time since those episodes stopped, there's been many, many great releases. And I was thinking about going back and doing Criterion episodes just going through the the back catalogue or kind of picking a a theme or something like that. I really wanted to to do them. And I'm going to look at doing something like that. But I wanted to combine it as well because obviously now the Criterion Collection has arrived on Britain's shores. And this was interesting to me for many reasons. Firstly, uh, the thing that came, I thought the most was, you know, what kept them so long really? And I know there were kind of massive licensing agreements and it seems that a, a, a deal was struck with um, Sony to distribute the discs. And we, we're apparently living in, in the age of uh, physical media, perhaps the last great age of, of format for, for buying films on. Uh, we all have things like Netflix and Amazon Prime and certainly when you look at the model now for television, it, it seems to be going in the direction of the bin, you know, the, the box set culture of ha- of having t- television made for things like Netflix and Amazon, and having all the episodes there, and indeed we're starting to see films coming out um, exclusively on those formats. But to me, I think there's always going to be the collector in film fans. I, I, it's time, I suppose, it's time to differentiate myself between a lot of the people I know. Everyone at work, they don't buy films on the level that I do. Everyone tends to watch them either on Sky, on Netflix or on Amazon. They don't really have that interest in building a collection. And it's always been something that's been very important to me uh, throughout my entire life. And to this day, I I, I love nothing more than going to the shop and picking up a bunch of Blu-rays. My favourite shop in the world is Fop in Manchester, which always has a kind of a great selection of, of films you can pick up for like six pounds three pounds but just blu-rays and you can you can, can t- take a punt on things you've never seen before and i i, I love it 
I, I always have done. But there was something about the Criterion Collection. They're a little bit special in many respects. And it has that, that seal of class, uh, much like Master Cinema, much like Arrow does in a way. So for them to come to Britain, I was really excited by it. And I'm pleased to report that what we've had so far uh, has, has done nothing but uh, reaffirm my love for the format. I think it's worth pointing out as well so far that of all the films that have been released on, on the Criterion UK, I've owned most, almost all of them, I think, already on from the Region A versions that came out, but I've decided to buy them again. Um, purely because I think it's important to kind of show your support, really. I think that's how I see it. I see it as a, a way of kind of hopefully putting back in and getting more releases out. My money in some small way can help keep the company going and I've been pleased to hear um, from a lot of people that they've been picking up these releases, especially in Fortnite, so they've been selling incredibly well, which is, is, is very encouraging. But in this episode, I'm just going to talk about the, the initial six um, films that we had released. The only one I'm going to be speaking about in a great detail is the Roman Polanski's Macbeth. None of the these were all uh, back catalogued uh, titles. There was nothing which came out in, in April that um, there was none of the new releases that were coming out in America. And I, I think it's worth just some, making some initial observations about that first run of release. Firstly, um, to my knowledge, none of the films that came out had previously been released on Blu-ray in the United Kingdom, which, it, it, that makes perfect sense, really. I know that you could pick, could pick them up on a normal DVD, and indeed I owned... Um, certainly Tootsie, which was one of the first ones, but and we had in Spine Number Order, um, Spine One Two Three, which was Grey Gardens, the brilliant documentary by the Missiles Brothers, um, Seven Two Six, which was Roman Plansky's Macbeth, Seven Three Six, which was uh, Frank Cabs It Happened One Night, Seven Three Eight, which was Sidney Pollock's Tootsie, um, Seven Eight Eight, which was the Harry Lloyd film uh, Speedy, and then Howard Hawks's only Angels Have Wings, spine number 806. So that to me represents a good selection of the films that the Criterion Collection offers. Uh, Grey Gardens is obviously an excellent documentary, it also comes with the, the sequel Bills of Grey Garden. What you get is a really nice selection of what the Criterion Collection has to offer. You've got silent cinema, you've got documentary, you've got classic Hollywood made from perhaps one of its uh, most iconic auteurs in the form of Howard Hawks uh, and, and indeed Frank, Frank Capra, Plansky's Macbeth, which was, if ever there was a film um, that was crying out for a Blu-ray release, especially out of these ones, that was definitely it. And needless to say, I, I picked them up all on day one. Now, I'm going to start with Grey Gardens very, very briefly. Gould and Mother made this record in 1934. He was Mother's accompanist. Was it a fashion thing? I thought it was the cat's pajamas in there. She could have married this Gerald Geddes. He was a millionaire, gave her a gorgeous ring. Mr. Wainwright did that. He was an artist from a very good family. He was in the social register. This is the worst one of my wedding pictures. If you haven't seen it, it's a documentary that features uh, two ladies, one called Big uh, Big Edie and her daughter Little Edie Beale. And they are a mother and daughter combination who 
were once high society in America. They are um, cousins of JFK's wife, Jackie Onassis, and they have been living in kind of magnificent squalor in a, a, a kind of a dilapidated mansion in the Hamptons. And it had been a long time since I had seen Grey Gardens and it had lost none of its charm, none of its sadness. And I think that was my overriding emotion that I took out of Grey Gardens. There is something utterly tragic in that film. It reminded me a little bit of um, whatever happened to Baby Jane, the, the, the old Hollywood film. And I was amazed how much it reminded me of the documentary work of Louis Theroux, that kind of observational approach and the way in which these two ladies, they seem to, there seems to be a really naturally developing story and as the film progresses, I'm not quite sure as to what degree uh, the filmmakers were influencing it, but certainly with Little Edie, you, you sense that there was the, the past was haunting her and it was, I think, I thought it was so emotional and quite tragic in a way when she was talking about all the people who she could have married, who her mother uh, poo-pooed, but just there's something so surreal about this film, seeing these two ladies, and little Edie especially as well, with these incredible outfits that she wears, and she's obviously very glamorous, and you can see the fact that they were wealthy, and I was just amazed as to how exactly uh, they had kind of fallen into this into this state, because there's absolutely no way, they live in abject poverty, and I mean, how the house, I mean, it's interesting because you find out at the start of the film that the local authorities are trying to close this house on the basis that it's become such a death trap and they have this seemingly endless supply of cats walking around. They've got raccoons living in the loft. But it was it was brilliant fun going back and visiting these two. And the, the film, the, the package comes with the, uh, the follow-up film, The Bills of Grey Garden, which was constructed from the hours of footage that they had left. And I... I'd, I'd like to go, I'd like to find out more about these two. I know that Little Edie, um, the mother actually died quite soon after the film was made, and Little Edie, I think, she kind of tried to uh, reinvent herself or relaunch her career uh, as a, a cabaret artist, which was um, disastrous, apparently. Grey Gardens, it, a fantastic way of kicking it off. It, it's obviously one of the oldest releases in the, well, certainly the oldest one that's come out so far, Spy Number 1, 2, 3, the oldest collection, uh, the oldest film to come out in the collection, but... Um, I, I really hope that more of these, that the, more of the Muscles Brothers stuff gets released now, especially uh, Give Me Shelter. Make way for the king. Make way for the king. Perhaps you're interested in how a man undresses. Dogging's an art. Don't let it soak so long. A dip and frock in your mouth. If you notice, the coat came first, then the tie, then the shirt. Now, it Happened One Night uh, is a Frank Capra film that comes under the banner of being a screwball comedy. And I have to confess, I don't particularly find screwball comedies that amusing. Um, certainly not up until, I suppose about a year ago. And I, I, I can't remember what one it was that I saw, but I did actually quite enjoy it. And I think It Happened One Night might be turning me around. Primarily the issue that I have is that they were obviously very funny for the audience at the time. And yet, to me, it just doesn't, it just falls flat. It's not my type of humour. But I did find It Happened One Night to be a really charming and funny film. I was quite surprised, and I, I, I'm possibly getting into this kind of annoying liberal guilt phase of 
beginning to find everything slightly offensive or questionable. But um, the treatment of women in this film was fairly awful. Um, Claudette Colbert, who who plays the uh, the runaway solicitor in the film, gets a gets a hearty slap from her father for not doing um, what she's told, and it just seemed to kind of unfold as if this was completely normal, acceptable behaviour. I'm certainly not one of these people who believes that we should be going back and applying modern sensibilities of issues like women's rights or seeing people smoking in films and instantly... I mean, there was recent... I mean, I think it's about two years ago now, actually, but there was talk of films that involve smoking having a special kind of certificate issue to them, all this kind of nonsense. I hope we don't go down that route. And like I said, it was only this one moment I suddenly thought, oh, it, it, I suddenly found it quite uncomfortable to be on Brute Nice Review, and I rewound the film a couple of times, and it looked like she was getting a bit of a slap. But all being said, I really enjoyed it happen one night. Um, Clark Gable really just exudes charm and charisma in the film, and I loved the ending. It reminded me a little bit, and I watched it quite recently, uh, with Crocodile Dundee can sneer all you want but I, I, I think the essence of films like It Happened One Night are in those and I suppose when you, you, you tell a love story where you're invested in the characters and you're enjoying watching them, um, we're all a sucker I suppose for, for a happy ending and I certainly feel that It Happened One Night was a thoroughly enjoyable film for me. Is that what you're saying to me? I will not get sucked into this conversation, Michael. Okay. I will not. Okay, look, I sent you a play to read that my roommate wrote. It had a great part in it for me. Did you read it? Where the hell do you come off sending me your roommate's play for you to star in? I'm your agent, not your mother. I'm not supposed to find plays for you to star in. I'm supposed to field offers, and that's what I do. Field offers? Who told you that? The agent fairy? That was a significant piece of work. I could have been terrific in that play. Michael, nobody's going to do that play. Why? Because it's a downer, that's why. Because oh. nobody wants to produce a play about a couple that moved back to Love Canal. But that actually happened. Who gives a shit? Nobody wants to pay $20 to watch people living next to chemical waste. They can see that in New Jersey. Look, I don't want to argue about it, okay? I'm going to raise the $8,000 myself so I can produce his play, and I want you to send me up for anything. I don't care what it is. I will do dog commercials on television. I will do radio voiceovers. Michael, I can't put you up for any of that. Why not? Because no one will hire you. Oh, that's not true, man. I bust my ass to get a part right, and you know I do. Yes, and you bust everybody else's ass, too. That's what you do. A guy's got four weeks to put on a play. You think he wants to sit and argue about whether or not Tolstoy can, can walk when he's dying or walk when he's talking or sing oh, when please, he's walking? two or... years ago, and that guy is an idiot. They and... can't all be idiots, Michael. You argue with everybody. You've got one of the worst reputations in this town, Michael. Nobody will hire you. Are you saying that nobody in New York will work with me? Oh, no, that's too limiting. Nobody in Hollywood wants to work with you either. I can't even send you up for a commercial. You play the tomato for 30 seconds, they want a half a day over schedule because you wouldn't sit down. Yes, it wasn't logical. You were a tomato! A tomato doesn't have logic! A tomato can't move! That's what I said! So if he can't move, how's he gonna sit down, George? I was a stand-up tomato, a juicy, sexy beefsteak tomato! Nobody does vegetables like me! I did an evening of vegetables off Broadway! I did the best tomato, the best Look, cucumber! I, I did wanna... an on-deep salad! Which brings me to... Spine number 738, which was Sidney Pollock's Tootsie. The first thing I would say about the film is that I really enjoyed it. I don't think I can bring myself to say that I think it is a classic by any stretch of the imagination, but it is very fun, and I think when executed properly, the romantic comedy is always a surefire way of lifting the spirits. 
However, I do have some issues with Tootsie, one of which being the fact that I think it is a troll through almost every gender stereotype you could possibly imagine. Now, it's all wrapped up in a quite charming and at times very witty story. However, I did find this film to be slightly grating in some respects. Most notably, I find it is the women in this film who have been treated particularly poorly. Jessica Lange plays Julie, who, yes, she does, I give a fine performance, but there is something eye-rollingly contrived about her, and it's something that, having gotten older and obviously kind of been through a few things with friends, I found it to be, I found the film at times to be both incredibly patronising and incredibly naive as to how it took dealt with Julie. I have some friends who are single mothers, they also have incredibly successful careers and are completely self-sufficient in their lives and many have shared with me uh, a series of tales involving men who consider them to somehow be in need of saving and they have taken it upon themselves to do this and some I've been reliably informed that a lot of men see single mothers as, as somehow they're in need of, of being rescued. They have to be kind of, that they have been abandoned by the fathers of their child and, you know, they're probably struggling to feed them and all this kind of nonsense. And they seem kind of slightly kind of patronised in the fact that these men seem to think they're incapable of guiding their way through life without them being there to help them. And it's total bullshit. Um, it's, it simply isn't the case. I think it's... Just a, a, a kind of a, a fl- perhaps a well-meaning flaw in a lot of men's thinking, and in Tootsie, this couldn't be more apparent in the character of Judy. She's an almost archetypal man's view of a woman who is in need of rescuing, and I found it slightly jarring to be brutally honest with you. She has a, ch- a child; it's actually a baby. In fact, we don't know anything about the father. We can only assume that he walked out and let her um, deal with it, but. She is in a relationship with the um, TV series she works on, uh, Ron, who's the, who's the director, he's a lot older than her, and he's naturally a complete shitbag to her. Yet Julie is clearly totally ignorant, or indeed to her emotional frailty, is too naive to even think that he might just simply be using her for his own end. And, and it's telling to, you know, Ron ends the relationship with, with her, and... What you have is the character of Michael, played by Dustin Hoffman, who is also playing a character called Dorothy, the titular Tootsie. And it's only Michael, through the guise of Dorothy, who can see that she is being walked over. It kind of creates an interesting paradox in the film, because men are both wrong and right in the film. Ron is a womanising shit. Michael is entirely callous towards his other girlfriend, Sandy. Yet... As a man, he apparently is able to correct the wrong that is being inflicted in Julie's life and trying to make her see sense that Ron is a shit. And yes, men are therefore terrible in the film. The deceit alone by Michael is truly awful, yet they also have a clue as to what is really going on. Sandy fares no better. She sleeps with Michael in an instant, yet she's completely unsure of herself. She lets herself be manipulated by him. And this is done in the most part for cheap comedic effect. And she is then discarded simply as a joke and as a write-off. And I don't think we're supposed to ever point, ever think that she is a worthy partner for Michael. Now, possibly the film is trying to play 
into the kind of the old screwball comedy that we kind of see in it happen one in night. But in the modern context, Tootsie, I think, ages itself quite badly, bearing in mind it was, I think it was made in like 1982. And certain elements of this film have aged hideously. There are some truly god-awful montages. The emotional, the, the score might as well come with captions saying you're supposed to fill this now. Just some awful soft focus, lovey-dovey moments. All that being said, I did have a good time with Tootsie. I did laugh quite heartily at a few times. Sidney Pollock, who's obviously directing, he's also in the film. I, I really miss Sidney Pollock in films, I've decided as an actor. I, he, he's got... He's got a great face. I don't know. It sounds a bit, a bit, a bit stupid, but some of his line deliveries in this film work so well because of his facial expressions. It's interesting because a poll of seventy-three um, actors currently working, including Juliet Binoche and Cillian Murphy and Andy, Andy Serkis, they declared Tootsie the greatest film ever made in two thousand fifteen. Now, of course, it isn't. Um, I, I could not disagree with that statement more, but. It's interesting that it's in the Criterion Collection. Um, I can see a lot of people would have been interested in picking it up. In, in fact, I'd love to know what kind of the sales figures were like for this initial round of releases. But um, does it belong in the Criterion Collection? Well, it, it's a strange one because I I feel really conflicted as to, as to Tootsie being in the, in the collection. Why not, I suppose, is the, is the immediate answer. Um Bearing in mind, I suppose Armageddon and The Rocker in there, I, I think it falls into that category of an oddity for me on the basis that the, the direction is certainly the film's kind of direction and look there, I suppose workmanlike. There's nothing particularly um, outstanding about them. Sidney Pollock, we don't consider him to be kind of one of the great auteurs of American cinema. Possibly, I was thinking something along the lines of we have the whole kind of um, debate going around of kind of transgenderism and I, I, I was thinking as I was watching it is this kind of is it a film that's having that debate or getting that conversation out there in the Criterion Collection I don't know uh, am I glad that I own it well most certainly um, I, don't, I, I don't think it's going to be a film I go back to a great deal uh, this is only the second time I had ever seen it but I, enjoy, I, I felt slightly guilty um, enjoying um, some of Michael's antics. And and yeah, it does have a kind of a slightly ridiculous ending. But you know what? I feel its heart is in the right place, most certainly. I, I don't think it's the most subtlest of films. I don't think it's possibly as clever as some people might think it is. But certainly very, very enjoyable. Okay, so folks, I think it's finally happened. Now, anyone who listens to this podcast will know... I'm not the biggest fan of the kind of slyland, slapsticky filmed by the likes of Charlie Chaplin and, in this case, Harold Lloyd. I don't know what it is. There just seems to be this black hole in my soul that prevents me from really enjoying them. Spine number 788, which was the Harold Lloyd film Speedy, however, may have changed that. This film might well caused me to completely re-evaluate my rather scornful attitude to films of its kind because this was undoubtedly one of the joyous hour and a half I've had watching a film in a long time. 
I absolutely adored Speedy on every conceivable level. For an hour and a half, I was laughing and smiling with just sheer cinematic joy. The film, on a technical level, is absolutely incredible. It's just, it's all there for see. And I think it's definitely a film which was helped by watching the supplements on it, which had some brilliant making of and some just really insightful kind of anecdotes about how the film was made. But it was so enjoyable. It had such a kind heart. And it's made, it's made me completely reevaluate, or perhaps not even reevaluate. I think it's just, it's like it's only rewired my head as to how. I should enjoy these films. I don't know what it was before. I don't know perhaps whether I've just not been ready all this time to really kind of get into these kind of silent comedies. But I feel like I've turned a corner and thanks to Speedy, it, 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 it's happened. Um, there's not a lot more I can say about it other than the fact that were I to, were out of this, this first batch of films were you to ask me which one was the most essential to pick up and I'm going to be doing quite an in-depth look at um, Polanski's Macbeth but this would be my standout film of this initial release it's the one I would recommend people to buy um, I'm really looking forward to, I, I hope there's more Harold Lloyd to come in the Criterion Collection and I, I, I think I'm going to uh, go back get those uh, Charlie Chaplin releases out and go and watch those because hopefully I can take my enthusiasm for Speedy and it will kind of happen with those ones as well but definitely Spine number 788 Harold Lloyd in Speedy just a joy from beginning to end. This is Barranca, a South American banana port where men live by their daring and women by their charm. Out of the fog steps a girl with a questionable past and a devil-may-care future. Out of the clouds drops a man with a propeller blade for a heart and an expert's eye for a pretty face. Cora's girl? No, I do especially. So much the better. The only thing I can tell you about him, he's a good guy for girls to stay away from. Spine number 806 was Howard Hawks's Only Angels Have Wings, which, although, although most of these are American films, obviously, this felt like the most Hollywood of films that we had in the collection. There was some, this was, it seemed like they were kind of like sticking the stake in the ground and saying, you know, this is classical Hollywood for you, here you go. It, it certainly had my favourite cover of all the films that came out. I, I, I did rather enjoy the artwork. Um, I first saw Only, Angel has, Only Angels Have Wing when I was at university, when I did a module on Howard Hawks. I didn't particularly enjoy it then. I got a lot more out of it this time. I have to say, I did. I, I still think it's quite a dull film. Um, it, it reminded me in a way, and I actually watched it straight after, which was William Freakin's Sorcerer. Uh, it had. It seemed to have that Im embody that kind of spirit of adventure out in the kind of unnamed South American countries. They just seem like to be a, a magnet for all kinds of um, daring do and shady types. But it was fun. It, it was fun, I suppose, seeing it again. I hadn't seen it since about two thousand. I don't think the print the uh, the restoration on this film is a 4k effort and it, it looked pretty incredible actually the sound as well i thought was absolutely spectacular in this it was only a mono a mono soundtrack um but definitely kind of the planes kind of 
rumbling through. I mean, my, my home cinema was shaking. But at two hours, I think there's a very flimsy story in there, or a very light story, to say the least. And I found this film was dragging towards the end. Uh, it, it could have lost 20 minutes, I think, here or there, and it would have been a far um, more palatable experience. But, I mean, it's Howard Hawks, and he's definitely... Uh, when we kind of talk about auteurs and whatnot, he's certainly one, certainly in terms of old Hollywood, who even amongst the, the Hollywood system, as it were, able to carve out a very individual uh, voice in his films. Uh, and some really good uh, features on this. I've particularly enjoyed the excerpts of the conversation between him and Peter Bogdanovich. And there was a, an interesting... Um, interview with the film critic David Thompson but perhaps uh, with only have uh, only angels have wings it might be one that kind of grows on me a little bit more in the future but this was not the weak link in the releases it was certainly one which I wasn't particularly bothered about and having seen the film again I, I wasn't kind of jumping for joy at having seen it again this is a sorry sight a foolish thought to say a sorry sight I thought I heard a voice cry Sleep no more. Macbeth does murder sleep. The innocent sleep. Sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. The death of each day's life. Sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds. Great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. What do you mean? Still it cried. To all the house. Glam's hath murdered sleep. And therefore, Cordor shall sleep no more. Macbeth shall sleep no more. Who was it that thus cried? Okay, so with all that out of the way, I'm going to have a rather in-depth look at spine number 726, which was Roman Polanski's Macbeth. So I suppose we have to have the conversation. And yes, this is a Roman Polanski film. And I think it's important to stress the fact that I am fully aware that he is a completely despicable human being. However, I do not for one moment think that we should anyway boycott his films. Quite frankly, I think they're too important and to not watch Chinatown on the basis that Roman Polanski is a convicted paedophile really does a great disservice to the likes of Robert Town's amazing script or Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway's mesmerising performances. I think it's perfectly acceptable to say that I like Roman Polanski's films. I just don't like the person in particular. And there is an added caveat to talking about Macbeth, which was this was actually the first film produced by Playboy Films. Hugh Hefner uh, was on board as executive producer. And I think that makes this film have a, a slight, I suppose it tarnishes it in a way that we kind of think that this being kind of a playboy production and thinking about Polanski's reputation. But although, of course, this was made in 1971, six years before uh, Polanski would be convicted of child sex abuse. And bringing him board as director seems like a perfectly logical thing to do. His films in the 60s and 70s um, are all noteworthy and I, 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 I would argue that there's a few masterpieces thrown in there and indeed looking at it now if we were to play kind of fantasy producer for a while if I was looking at making an adaption of Macbeth 
Um, I can't really imagine any many more names I would have on the shortlist along with Polanski. Indeed, thematically, it seems a play that was perfect for his directorial style. Polanski was convinced to do the film whilst he was actually on a skiing trip in Switzerland, and originally it was budgeted at $1.5 million and would be released through Columbia. Now, Polanski is of course no stranger to the Criterion Collection. We have Knife in the Water, Repulsion, Cul-de-Sac, uh, Rosemary's Baby and Tess already. Polanski was brought to America by the producer Robert Evans to direct Downhill Racer. Instead he would end up making Rosemary's Baby, after which his wife and unborn child were murdered by the Manson family. One can only really imagine the horror of having to deal with this. And that's why, in a way, I'm not surprised that he would make Macbeth. The film was shot in Wales and England, and you can imagine him being quite eager to leave the United States for a while. I don't think if necessarily you're in a bad place, you might be able to escape that mode of thought. And for someone creative like Polanski, the appeal of challenging your energy into something like Macbeth might be quite appealing. Indeed, in one of the retrospective documentaries on the disc, we see Plansky and a producer discussing that really he was damned whatever film he made. The history of Shakespeare on film and television has, in my experience at least, yielded some hugely impressive results. My, my first real exposure came in the form of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet and Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, two very different films, yet both, in my opinion, show great examples of how Shakespeare's plays can be adapted to the screen. Lerman juxtaposed a garish camp pop extravaganza with the nuances and subtleties of Shakespeare's prose perfectly. The film is loud and in your face, but above all it captures the tragedy and forlorn love that linger long after the credits. Hamlet, which is begging to be remastered, is a 70mm epic that apart from the distracting cameos from the like of Jack Lemon, is however a hugely impressive film. At four hours it is not for the faint-hearted but it's well worth checking out and sadly I have never actually seen it in the cinema. I did actually get the opportunity to go and watch it and I think my uh, rather foolishly um, turned down that opportunity, something I'm, I'm kicking myself ever since. But overall my experiences with Shakespeare have been massively positive, especially in a filmic context. Even films inspired by Shakespeare, like Corosaro's Ran, have yielded some of the greatest viewing experiences of my life. Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's most filmed plays, from Corosaro's Throne of Blood to Orson Welles, to recently Justin Kurzel's take, possibly featuring a career best performance from Michael Fassbender. I would love to go through them all again at some stage and see the subtle differences. There are some classics that have been inspired by Macbeth. Kurzel's version had some detractors, most notably for the lack of Lady Macbeth, or her part was drastically reduced. But again, I see these adaptions and like, and moreover, they are remixes of the source materials. And yes, I know reducing Lady Macbeth's part greatly is deviating far from the original source material. But as I have often cited, film is film, and if it works in its own right and is interesting, then I really don't have a problem with making huge changes. Now I'm pleased to report that Lady Macbeth is all here and present in Polanski's version, played by Frances Anast. Now she was originally going to be in Repulsion, but was dropped in favour of Catherine Deneuve, partly due to the fact that she didn't speak French and that at the time Polanski 
could not speak English and it was decided it would just be slightly easier to cast someone else. Alongside John Finch playing Macbeth, there's something quite interesting about these two because they are both very young for the role, which I think is actually a good thing in terms of the film. Firstly, I think there's a degree of historical accuracy to this because medieval kings and queens were quite young, sometimes barely in their teens, if that in some cases. And also, I think it's in keeping with the film's style. These are not classical, lovey darling actors. I think there is a way they deliver the lines which makes them quite conversational in tone. The film was shot on location in England and Wales, and it's fair to say it looks absolutely stunning. Lindisfarne Castle, which doubles for Inverness, was also seen in Polanski's Coley Sack. And indeed, my last experience of Macbeth was actually seeing it performed at the theatre. So watching the film in these incredible locations made it seem even more epic to me. And indeed, listen to my review of The Vikings to better understand how I feel location shooting works over sets. By its very nature, Macbeth is a film that may seem quite off-putting. I would be lying if I said that I fully understood Shakespeare. The evolution of language means that it's near impossible to simply watch Macbeth and not have to listen to every word intently. In the age of the smartphone and other distractions, of which I am eternally guilty of, watching a film like Macbeth requires your absolute undivided attention. Yet one of the most challenging, indeed rewarding aspects of watching adaption of Shakespeare is the very depth to the text. Scholars and academics pour over his prose with a microscopic intensity dissecting, debating, interpreting, possibly with more scrutiny and dedicated academic study than any other creative writer in history. It is part of his lasting appeal, though I won't lie. There is nothing more annoying than watching one of Shakespeare's comedies to find someone burst into self-satisfied laughter at some obscure Shakespearean in-joke that only the most diehard would have any comprehension of understanding. But I can see why, and indeed fully appreciate, why Shakespeare's prose are so intently scrutinised. Why I think this adaption works is because Polanski is not overtly reverential to the text, instead reformats the play for the cinema. What you don't get when you look at one of Shakespeare's plays is a, a plethora of stage directions. And I think Polanski added to this the conventions and the codes of cinema. Plays are performed in front of us. We don't have the luxury of close-up and reaction shots. And films are a far more personal guide through a narrative. And at Beth, we see the scheming and skullduggery in far more intimate detail. And indeed, by casting the lead slightly younger than is perhaps traditional, there is a certain feeling of naive naivety mixed with youthful excitement as Lord and Lady Macbeth plan and plot their treachery. It is clear that also they are quite ignorant to their own mental fallibility and how they will be affected by their deeds. Macbeth is seduced on the idea of overthrowing the Queen by the witches and he's dabbling with the dark arts and his ascension to the throne through murder. Spiritually condemn him and Lady Macbeth. Polanski makes the film relentlessly grim to the extreme and given the subject matter, why not? This approach was not appreciated by critics at the time, and I'm not entirely sure why this was the case, to be honest with you, because I don't really see how you can make Macbeth light. Perhaps they thought it was gratuitous, and again, I, I, would, I would venture the opinion that they were kind of, in a way, condemning Polanski for showing us so much violence and horror, given the fact that what had actually happened to him. 
It is, though, a play about the lust for power and the effects of evil deeds on the human psyche, or at least that is what I have actually taken from it. One aspect of Macbeth that has always particularly spooked me is when Lady Macbeth pleads to God to be unsexed. I've always wondered what she actually means by this. Is it a simple plea to escape the limitations of gender that somehow if she can get away from the confines of femininity, she would be able to be- better plot and scheme her evil plans. I don't think she's asked to be returned to some kind of virgin state, but whatever the meaning of this line, it has always intrigued me and I dare say kind of haunted me in a way. Raven himself is horse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here, and fill me from the crown to the toe-top full of direst cruelty. Make thick my blood. Stop up the access and passage to remorse, that no compunctious visitings of nature shake my fell purpose. It was a line that was noticeably absent in the recent version, and as she stands here on the battlements waiting for the king to arrive, it struck me how thoroughly odd and unsettling a moment this is. What I also enjoyed about the film was how the two actors deliver their dialogue so naturally. And there's a real sense of intimacy, and dare I say love between the Macbeths, which I really appreciated. It made you feel that you were kind of going along on this journey with them. And there's something I think quite strange when we kind of pull back the curtain like this, because in a way, this film humanizes Lord and Lady Macbeth. it's, It's easy to see how this plan could go from kind of inception to being implemented. The violence in Macbeth therefore is necessarily brutal as it has a direct result on the psychological state of the characters. And I feel this is an important point because You could argue, as I've said before, that kind of critics were saying this was being gratuitous, but I think this is simply incorrect. Lord and Lady Macbeth ask for horrific deeds to be done in their name, and Shakespeare shows us there is a price to pay, and seeing the violence presented in such a way gives a clear understanding of cause and effect. Yes, it is unpleasant at times, but this is the nature of violence. When Macbeth is haunted by the image of the dead king at the feast, he blames all around him for playing a trick, and given the supernatural undertones of the the play, you could indeed believe that some kind of apparition has appeared before him, or it's merely evidence that he is losing his mind entirely. Either way, this figured king he sees before him is a direct result of of the violence that he has asked for, Which of you have done this? What, my good lord? Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. Gentlemen, rise. His highness is not well. Sit worthy, friends. My lord is often thus and hath been from his youth. Pray you keep seat. 
The pit is momentary. Uh, Connor thought he will again be well. Are you a man? Aye, and a bold one that dare look on that which might appall the devil. Oh, proper stuff. This is the very painting of your fear. This is the air-drawn dagger which you said led you to Duncan. Shame itself. Why do you make such faces? When all's done, you look but on a stool. Prithee, see there. Behold! Look, I say you! Avoid to quit my sight! Let the earth hide thee! Thy bones are marrowless, thy blood is cold. Thou hast no speculation in those eyes which thou dost glare with. But man dare, I dare, take any shape but that, and my firm nerve shall never tremble. Oh, hence, horrible shadow! Unreal mockery, hence! One of the reasons I feel Macbeth has translated so well across the ages is quite simply we can take from this story and make it fit almost any circumstances. The lust for power in individual ranges from the rise of the dictator to the hostile takeover in the boardroom. Take for example someone like Hillary Clinton, I personally cannot stand her. Here is someone who has planned her entire life to rule over the others. On the one hand, she campaigns for liberal principles, yet paradoxically asks for six-figure sums to give speeches at some of the most reprehensible corporations on earth. She is the consummate politician, a comedian that will do just about anything, and indeed say anything, to attain a position of power. She even has a rumoured spreadsheet of those who have crossed her, her and her husband, and of course this has actually been denied, but I seriously wonder how many of her foes have been crushed during her time in politics. Lady Macbeth herself, I believe, is something of a political statement from Shakespeare too. The very fact that she can have such sway over a man is telling, and Polanski through Annis, I believe, also quite cleverly shows that she can be feminine as well as highly dangerous. Socially, yes, she may well be on the peripheral in this man's world, but we are reminded that in the corridors and in the bedroom, men are weak and susceptible to all manner of influence. Yet she is also reserved the worst death of all. She kills herself and presumably guarantees her place in hell. Lady Macbeth's torment removes her from the construct of normal society. Polanski's direction in the film is also quite masterful. Macbeth feels like it has been freed from the confines of the theatre. It is a huge film in terms of its visual presentation. The establishing shots of castles on the countryside are breathtaking at times. It was filmed in Todd AO35 widescreen. This may not be 7mm, but it certainly does the job. The film has a cold look to it. There is always a storm cloud or the sun hanging just above the horizon. The sparse landscapes are often juxtaposed with scenes of duvality inside the various castles, and despite the smiles and the apparent fun, there seems to be vicious scheming and evil intentions always just underneath the surface. The world of Mabeth is unrelentingly dangerous. Where there are no humans, there are mountains and cold and rains. Where there are humans in the apparent warmth of castles, there are a bevy of people just waiting to kill you. This is a world where no one can really hide or escape death and the creeping sense of fear permeates the entire film. One thing that struck me particularly about the mise-en-scene and indeed the costume design of the film was the simplicity to it. King Douglas and later King Macbeth are not seen dripping in cold. Kingship is not represented by apparent wealth and opulence. Of course there is a symbolic crown, but overall it seems that monetary 
needs are not the primary objectives of the characters. The castles look cold. We don't see a sudden huge apparent change in the Macbeth's material world. Indeed, the Macbeth's world seems to become more spartan as the films go on. The walls almost become prison-like within these castles. And indeed, their secret is so awful that they have virtually become their own jailers. Macbeth came and went with little draw, box office draw. And in fact, Columbia actually buried the film quite, click, quite quickly. It wasn't helped by the Playboy Association. And I do think it is a rather easy way of writing the film off before one could really give it a chance. And time has been kind on Macbeth, and I'm glad of this, because the final confrontation is spine-tingling stuff, and in the age of Game of Thrones, Macbeth looks quite ahead of its time. It's a starkly beautiful film. It has a tangibility to it, the epic sets and the actual location, that makes you completely believe this world. Plansky's direction, I feel, really kind of sucks you in. The way the camera moves, revealing corridors or tracks with characters to reveal another one watching someone else, sucks you into the conspiracy along with the protagonists. I'm not sure it's the definitive version of Macbeth. I would certainly say it's my favourite. It's epic, it's bloody, it's very dark. And one of those ice-cold British winters, this is a film that will help chill you to the bone. I'm pleased to say that the Blu-ray presentation on this Criterion disc is absolutely top-notch, as is the sound. It comes loaded with some extras, um, including you know, feature-length documentaries being made. A rather interesting contemporary one as well, which we have kind of um, a rather brilliant scene in which you see kind of the, the catering ladies complaining about their conditions. But overall, um, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this film for, for all the right reasons and that's the the bloodletting and the skullduggery so spine number 762 Roman Polanski's Macbeth so that's going to be it for this criteria roundup I've got a few more to get through I'm possibly going to be looking at Easy Rider next which was another one of the releases um, and I'm, I'm really keen to talk about that film anyway but um, let me know what you think of this I will keep up these criterions we're probably going to mix it up a little bit I'll pick some uh, ones from the catalogue, some ones that have come out in America, but we're going to kind of uh, get back on these because I really did do enjoy doing them and I hope you've enjoyed listening to them. So many thanks for listening. You can find me on my other podcast with Joachim at the Master Cinema Cast. That's mocast.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook as well. I'm the Tom Jennings with a miserable expression standing beside the Berlin Wall. So do get in contact. Uh, let me know what you think and I will be back soon. Bye.